Today on Explorations in Psychotherapy, we're welcoming IFS lead trainer Paul Neustadt. Paul is a clinical social worker who has worked in community mental health and the counseling program of a working-class state university, and he's been the director of a community-based counseling and prevention program. He's an IFS senior co-lead trainer who also provides IFS consultation for individuals and groups. He's given workshops on the gifts of our exiles, reconnecting with our true self, direct access, an essential skill of IFS, self-led parenting, self-led feedback, skeptical parts, and other topics. He has written a chapter called From Reactive to Self-Led Parenting in a book edited by Martha Sweezy and Ellen Ziskind. Today, we'll be talking with him about the process of finding our own way with the IFS model as therapists and practitioners. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the welcome and introduction, Lexi. I feel very grateful to be with the two of you, be here with the two of you today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Welcome back, Paul. So good to reconnect. Our last time together was precisely one year ago in August 2022. That's right. We did an amazing talk on the gifts of our protectors. How have you been those days? Uh, it's been a challenging year for, for me. Uh, you know, ch for me, challenges always bring gifts. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, it's part of my life philosophy that uh, to always use the challenges that life presents me to find the gifts that are within them. and. Um, So I've I've certainly had my challenges this year and uh, come away with some gifts from that. Um, before we do uh, get into our topic for today, I do feel a need, though, just to name and acknowledge uh, a ra reality that we're all um, living with. And um, I, I just I just want to say out loud something that we all know which is that the climate crisis is happening now. It's no longer a feared future. Um, the multiple catastrophes, um, the increasingly severe weather related, related uh, you know, to the climate change, the floods, the droughts, the wildfires, storms and hurricanes, millions of people uprooted by it all. It's, it's all happening now. And um, I just wanted to let people know that we are planning uh, together, Annabelle and uh, Lexi and I, and, and hopefully someone else, um, are planning to dedicate a whole podcast to, um, to, to climate change. And we don't know yet exactly when that will happen, but uh, this is a really important topic, and we're hoping to devote a whole podcast to that. Thank you, Paul. We hope to be soon. Paul, what led you to want to talk about this topic, finding your own way as an IFS therapist? Uh, and why do you feel it's important for people to find their own way as IFS therapists? Before I launch into that, I, I want to share with you something about my process this morning before, you know, as I was preparing for this podcast. Because uh, I just I feel like that's important for me to share with uh, you, the two of you and, and uh, listeners. I, I I got in touch with a part of me with, who was having uh, some doubt this morning about whether what I had to share had had any had any value at all. Like really, what does what I have to say really have any value for people? And um, as I listened to that part of me, you know, I, first of all, I, I was feeling it, you know, I was, I started off being a little bit blended with that, that self-doubt and which I think is, um, you know, very common for, for a lot of us is, is you start off being a little blended with a part. And then I, but then I, as I listened to it, I said, okay, here we, you know, here's this part of me. And I got curious towards it and said, oh, okay, are you protecting me? Um, from something. And um, what I got in touch with, you know, when I really got curious and listened to this part is it, it was protecting, it said it was protect, it was concerned that um, 
about me being arrogant. Like, like uh, it, it's afraid of a part of me who could be arrogant if, if it wasn't uh, bringing forth doubts about, about what I might say. So I just appreciated it, you know, because because I, you know, I don't I don't want to be arrogant. It wants me to preserve my humility. So I, I guess I want to just say before we start that um, you know I'm just sharing some some things I I've learned and thought and you know I I want to ask both of you 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 two also have a lot of experience and I want to invite the two of you to share your thoughts about the things that I bring up also. You know, these are just some things that have come to me over the years, you know, working with, you know, I've been a trainer for many years and I've supervised, consulted to a lot of people. And so it's just observations and things that have come to me that that I feel uh, based on all those years of working with students of IFS. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Anyway, so to answer your question, how did I come to this? Why do I think it's important to think about finding our own way? I guess what, you know, I teach a seminar for level one graduates, and I and I lead a lot of consultation groups. And what I've seen over and over again is, is people getting stuck around feeling like they're not really doing IFS properly. They're not doing it right. And getting stuck because they feel like uh, there's a certain way you're supposed to do IFS, and they're not doing it the right way. And they really give themselves a hard time. There's a lot of, um, you know, they have a lot of parts who are really self-critical and uh, judging themselves. It feels like like um, that judging and and self-criticism is getting in their way of, of of kind of integrating the model better and and moving on in the way that I feel like they need to. I just see that over and over again. So I guess the way I see it is that um, learning IFS is similar to learning any skill. Um, it's a developmental process. And at first you do need to concentrate on uh, gaining skills by learning them the way they're taught. Um, and and so that's it, it makes sense. you you do want you do want to focus on you know getting it right at first. Um, but once you do that, um, then you have to move on to the next step, which is making it your own. Um, and that takes, um having permission to do that has you you have to have permission to say okay um now that you've focused a lot on like getting the six f's and getting the healing healing steps and like now you can relax a little bit and see like okay now you can ex- start to experiment and see what feels right to you rather than like I have to get it exactly right. And so I, I, I just feel like people need to hear that message that that there's a shift that's needed to, from getting it exactly right to um, making it your own. I'm really appreciating what you're saying. You know, on multiple levels, one, as a musician myself, this is the process that I would always go through in learning an, a new piece of music, for example. You know, you first are learning the notes and then the technique that's required to play a piece. And really only after you have that down, the basics down, can you start to improvise and make it your own and bring the emotion to it and, and have sort of the art of music happen and so I wanted to ask you, so you're really touching on things I was hoping that to uh, you would touch on, which is, so what is involved then in going from learning the basics to making it our own? And you gave us a really important piece here, which is just being able to have that permission to do it. That yes, once you basically get familiar with, memorize the steps of the protocol, get the procedure in your bones a bit then helping our parts know it's okay to allow us to flow with the model. 
you know, so I think there's what, what I was getting from you here is rather than I have to get it right, you know, so having that permission to, to make it our own. And I think IFS is so valuable in that because part of how we work with trainees and consultees is helping to find those parts of them that are having a hard time softening back to allow them to give them that permission. You know, they're, these parts are looking to how am I supposed to be doing it? What are the steps? How have I been taught to, to do it? And when they can have that permission to relax back, then we see, of course, more access to self and the creativity, not only the creativity that can flow in making it our own, but the possibility for attunement with our clients, which is what allows the model to flow more organically. So I'm really appreciating what you're saying here around that permission piece. Yes. Thank you, Lexi. I love your use of the word attunement because to me, that's such a key word, um, a key goal to reach that we want to get to the place where where we've where what we're really focusing on is that quality of attunement with our clients. Yeah, exactly. And we can't really get there when our sweet, hardworking managers who want to get the protocol exactly right are blended, such that you know we're kind of moving from that energy of. Am I getting it right? Maybe self-criticism is happening. You know, other um, trying. It, it's it's we we do need the space in order to be attuned, and so being able to compassionately work with those parts who've helped us probably so much throughout our lives with their desire to learn to get it right to do things well. So honoring those parts, connecting with them, so that they might be able to soften, then we get that space and then the attunement starts to happen. Yes, exactly. I love that. I love what you just said. So um, so there's a key piece to get there for me, which is what I call working with your stumbling blocks. So for me, the stumbling blocks are places where we keep getting stuck. Um, the place where we can seem to get past in our learning with certain kinds of clients or issues. And there are many very common stumbling blocks in IFS. Um, and just to name a few, you know, different people have different stumbling blocks, but some people have a hard time just introducing the model. You know, how do I introduce the model to people? Um uh, some people have a hard time, like, how do I get people to shift to focus inside? Um, it could be helping people unblend when they're very blended, um, helping people access self-energy. Um, how do you help people who are skeptical about, about the model? Um, uh, unburdening, you know, is very common. A lot of people, you know, like I, I've been doing the model. I just can't seem to get people to unburden. Um, so, you know, there's the one where like different parts keep jumping in, you know, like, oh, there's this part. Oh, and then there's another part and all, you know, there's tons of parts that keep jumping in. Um, or, um, like working with my own parts, I keep getting triggered and like, how do I work with, you know, my own parts that, get, that jump, that are jumping in. So, um, so th those are, um, you know, they're just a number of different stumbling blocks that we can have. And so I find that uh, helping people identify their own stumbling blocks and, I, what what people what I find is that what often happens with new IFS therapists is they treat their stumbling blocks as a negative thing, as a as a negative obstacle that um, triggers self more self criticism, and they feel like they have to push it out of the way. Um, and they feel bad about. Um, and so what I try to teach people is you're, you, you need to see your stumbling block as a good thing, is like this is your opportunity for learning, um, that the stumbling block is exactly what you need to focus on because 
this is what the, the stumbling block is where you're going to learn what you exactly what you need to learn. Um, the lessons you need to learn are contained actually within your stumbling block. What you're saying is is huge here. I and I wish I could remember whose quote this is when they say, like, what's in the way is the way. Exactly. And exactly. <laughs> I feel like that's what you're talking about yeah. here. And yeah. you're right. Instead of um, what naturally happens for people, where parts of them notice the stumbling blocks and then feel they feel that it's a negative, and then other parts are reacting to that, and then they're more and more and more blended. It, it's such an opportunity on a couple of levels. Um, maybe going back to the information you were giving us before on the developmental process um, and what the fact that in order to get to the art, the improvisation, the attunement, we do need to know the basic steps. So some of these stumbling blocks that you're talking about, like not knowing how to help people unblend or help facilitate them turning inside, some of those when a person notices them and names them in consultation, for example, they can get instruction on here are some ideas about how to help somebody unblend, you know, or how to help someone, you know, focus inside to make the transition from external to internal focus. So they can bring these that type of stumbling block up in consultation. I don't know how to and get some ideas around here, are some ways you can experiment with that. And then there are other types of stumbling blocks that you were mentioning where maybe parts of people, of therapists and practitioners get overwhelmed by all the activity in a client system. Those types of stumbling blocks shows us, oh, there's a trailhead for us. I've got parts that get overwhelmed with that. I can turn toward that and do the personal work that I need to so that the parts of me that get overwhelmed can give me the space to stay curious. So there's like multiple types of learning that can happen and I know that like, at least from my system, when I'm learning something, you know, initially I remember supervisors, not just in IFS, but across models, just telling me to relax. You know, they were speaking to my hardworking managers and they're like, just relax and it'll flow. Or when I was learning dance or when I'm learning music, just relax, let it flow. And my managers were saying, no, I don't work that way. <laughs> I, I need to know the exact angle that I need to hold my pinky during this uh, move in the dance. And if I know then I'll relax. You know? So it's sort of this idea that please help me understand the procedures first. Give me ideas for how to approach this. Tell me the protocol. Once my managers get comfortable that there's some degree of understanding and some degree of, of basic competence, then you have the hope of helping them <laughs> to relax so that I can flow. So again, I love what you're saying, um, Lexi, because there isn't one answer for everybody in every part like if a part of you needs a particular way of doing things like by by really tuning into that part you can come up with the answer that that part needs like you know like some of our parts do need an intellectual response some of them need a more experiential response or a more res emotional response, or a more physical response. But you don't know until you tune into that particular part what it needs. Um, and, and so, but, but when we pay attention to this, the part involved in the stumbling block, you really get curious and you tune into it, then you can see, okay, well, what does that part need? Exactly. That's having this difficulty here. Thank you. Can we get back to this question? Why do you feel it's important or why should we feel it's important for people to find their own way as IFS therapists? Okay, well, um, I, I believe that we're each unique. So we're both, so there's a way in which as human beings, we're both, there's a, there are elements to us that are both universal and also unique. And when we are working with clients, I think it's really important that we help our clients 
you know, like, like we don't force our clients to adjust to this model. I think we have to remember that this, this is just a, IFS is a model. It's a framework. This is not like the absolute truth. Yes. It's a model. You are saying, Paul, that we need the client to meet, to meet another person, the therapist, and not to meet the model. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like we're, we're two human beings and, you know, Dick and, and some of the other people who developed this model, Dick, you know, they learned this model from their clients. So I think sometimes, unfortunately, we might forget that. And there's, you know, can be like a trying to push clients to conform to the model in a way that might not work for the client. Um, I've heard about, you know, instances of this, of clients um, feeling uncomfortable because they're being pushed too hard. Uh, when they're not ready to go inside or to you know to, to to do certain things that they're just not ready for yet um because we 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 really need to find ways uh to help um adjust the model to that client system yeah this is helpful because i'm really hearing you're talking about when you're talking about making the model our own you're really talking on two levels making it you know, adapting it to how it flows authentically from the therapist or practitioner and adapting it to making it the client's own. Like, how is it going to land? In what in what way is it going to land most effectively with their system and work in concert yeah. with their system? So as well as... Yeah, with- so making it work for me is good practice for helping it work for my client. So I'll give you one example. When I was a new IFS therapist, I don't know... If this is taught that much to people now, but one of the things that Dick was teaching when I was learning was um, if you have a challenging firefighter, um, you could you could suggest putting the firefighter in a room. You know, it would be safer to work with the firefighter if it was in a room and uh, you were looking at the firefighter from outside the room. And so it would be safer for your other parts if the firefighter was in this room. So I tried that with the client and um, the client's other part, the client freaked out. The client hated it. And uh, it was a terrible experience <laughs> with this client. The client absolutely, you know, had a horrible backlash. It was just, just really terrible. <laughs> okay. And uh and here it was, you know, like I was like surprised, like here was this technique I was being taught is like this great safe technique, supposed to make things very safe for the client. And instead, the client experienced it as um, traumatic. I've had the same experience. I mean, it's like you say, things land differently in different systems and for some systems, and we've seen it happen in demos that Dick has done where that technique worked beautifully, right? And really landed well and helped create a sense of safety to allow the work to proceed. And then I've had just the situation that you have had where, and sometimes protectors have been very direct, we do not want any parts enclosed in a room. We've we've lived that in various ways. We're not doing that. Like essentially inside our own system. So it would have decreased safety, you know, and decreased access to self to use the technique. And so that's where it is so helpful. Like you said, um, Dick learned this model essentially by being mentored by his clients. And so you're speaking to really allowing that process to unfold for us too, to learn through experience with different systems and to then have that flexibility. Like it doesn't always have to look one way. How is this landing in this person's system? What types of adjustments can their parts essentially guide us to make so that it works exactly for them? Yeah. And trusting that we'll yeah. get guidance from them if we are open to it. Yes. So we have to be open to letting our clients teach us what's going to work for them. And that means we have to be willing to make mistakes with our clients. We we don't, we have to see, you know, mistakes have to be okay. Doesn't mean that something terrible has happened. Just means we're, that's how we learn. So that openness to learning from our clients, how is this approach going to work for you? 
making it work for ourselves is in a sense practice. That's how this approach works. You take a model and you see, okay, how's it going to work for me? How's it going to work for my clients? Yeah. That's how it's meant to be. Yeah. So it looks like we need to be loyal, not only to the model, but also to the client somehow. Yes. It really, what you were just saying really makes me think about the importance when, when possible for therapists and practitioners to have received their own IFS therapy, to have participated in it, because as you see like how things landed in your system and what adaptations were necessary for your system to be able to, to heal with the model and for protectors in your system to allow certain things, um, at least for me, that really helped me, my parts who might have been tempted to rigidly adhere to a protocol, you know, to say, wow, in my own system, that didn't work and flexibility was needed. And one thing doesn't work across the board, even in one person's system. So certain parts of me needed different approaches than other parts of me did. So it isn't even a client by client basis. It could be a part by part basis to where, so that flexibility is so important. So I like what you're saying that as we're in various ways, making the model our own, it also facilitates our being able to be flexible and adaptable to what our client system needs as, you know, essentially they're making it their own too in their own work. Right. Right. Uh, and I had another question. Um, so many of us who are IFS trainers or consultants, we share this concern that maybe in the process of someone making the IFS model their own, that they might move away from some of the fundamentals that are essential to the power, to the effectiveness of IFS that have been developed and refined over many decades by Dick and others. So I'm wondering, do you share those types of concerns? And if so, if you could speak to maybe any cautions you would offer about how can we approach this journey of making it our own in a way that maintains fidelity to, to the model at the same time? Uh, I think that is an important question. I haven't given as much thought to that because I haven't I haven't run across that um working with people, the people I've been working with. I, I I've really run more across more needing to help people um the in the other way, you know, like opening up more to uh making it their own. So yeah, I guess I don't have as much to say about that right now. I, I would like to get back though to to the working with your stumbling blocks because there's a piece of that that I, I want to share. I want to give an example of how that can work. Um and one key piece of that for me, um how powerful it can be. Because um what i find is two things one is so often we the, those stumbling blocks do bring up our um parts of ourselves so often i find um uh they're showing us um parts of us that we really do need to work on if we're going to um be able to uh access our own self-energy well enough to be with our clients there are parts of us we really have to work on um so that's one piece and um and then there's there's another piece which is those parts of us once we work on them often have something valuable to offer us um about the work about the next step we need to learn so i'll just give you an example so if, um this example has to do with um clients who come in and are very skeptical about the model which i think is really hard for a lot of people someone comes in they're very skeptical and a lot of therapists um give up at that point they say oh i okay it, it triggers a skeptical part of ourselves um and so and that's a whole nother topic i gave a workshop many years ago about working with our own skeptical parts and i just want to say skeptical parts are some of our most valuable parts 
it's really important to have a good relationship with your own skeptical part. Um, so, but anyway, client comes in with, with skeptical parts. And um, so it can trigger a part of us that is lacking confidence. Um, and so uh, this is this is the example I'm going to give. So it triggered a part of me who lacked confidence in myself. So when I focused on that part, it turned out it was a part of me who had been with me for a very long time. Um, always afraid of being questioned and doubted by someone. And it brought me back to my relationship with my older brother. And this part carried a lot of shame about not being able to stand my ground with um uh with 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 you know with with people who would who would challenge me. Um and uh so uh, when I was able to be with this part, um, identified the burden it was carrying, which is that I didn't have the inner strength or intelligence to withstand somebody else's intellectual assault. My brother was, I felt like my brother was smarter than me. And um, he would really give me a hard time intellectually. And um, it felt like an intellectual assault. Um, so um, I was able to be with this this part, this young part, and let it know that I could reassure him and say, look, it's going to be okay. I can be with you. If somebody challenges me intellectually, I can be with you. We'll be okay. And, and I was able to go back into the past and help him realize that this wasn't about you. It wasn't about you. This was probably came from my brother was given a hard time by our father. And that's what it was. My, my brother was carrying some wound from my father. This wasn't about us. Um, so we, I did this healing work with that part. And then now this is a key piece. Once I did that, I said to this part of me, OK, now I want to ask you, what do you have to offer me? about working with clients who come in skeptical about the model. So to, for me, this is a very key piece of this kind of work, because what I find is if I approach these parts with this belief, this attitude that they have something to offer me, they always do. They always have something to offer. So I said to this part, what do you have to offer me? about when when my clients come in and they're skeptical what how should i respond and this part said to me be grateful be grateful to these parts that come in skeptical because that's a great way to start with a client when it comes in with a skeptical part because then you can listen to their doubts and there's always something to learn it, from a client's skeptical part. It's a great way to start and help them help them explore their doubts. Just like you help, just like you just like we just did. This is so beautiful. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is it's actually, I mean, it's literally bringing up emotion for me, like listening to you describe this process. Um, how important it is that extra step that you take in looking for the gift that the part has to offer us as we proceed in our work with clients, not just in doing, I mean, you did beautiful healing work with a part of yourself, which of course we know then essentially allows for yourself to be more present, the work to flow better, but you didn't stop just with the healing of the part. You know, you went further, you're really honoring the fact that this part holds gifts and wisdom that can then carry forward into our future work with people. And you're inviting that part in to, you know, offer its wisdom, collaborate, and that honoring, I think that's what sort of brought up emotion from parts of, of me that have, have felt like they've had something to offer to the process and they, they're grateful to receive healing and they also still want to contribute. There's, there's something they hold that they want to lend to my work with my clients as well. And it, and it also brought up for me, like listening to you talking about working with um, 
parts of us that can get activated by skeptical parts of our clients that might need healing. What do you see as the role of, let's say, the parts of us that are skeptical about the model? Maybe therapists and practitioners themselves have parts that are skeptical about the model. And how can we um, work with that as we develop? (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, because I want to get to that also because... um, uh, I so that's the other, another piece I want to say. Make your skeptical parts an ally. Um, treat them as as potential allies also. And so, when I um, really got to know my skeptical part, what, one of the things I I discovered was that it was afraid that I would be too gullible, that I was too quick to just believe things that people would tell me without really exploring them uh, and and uh, carefully. Um, and, you know, I just would go along with things too easily and then uh, ended up end up getting disappointed um, because I had I hadn't um, looked into it carefully enough, thought about it carefully enough for myself. And there was a whole history to this. Uh, a, a point, a period in my life where where that was true. I I had I had been too gullible. I had believed things uh, too easily, and so I was able to really appreciate this part for trying to protect me from repeating that experience. And I was able to then uh, ask that part to help me. Uh, you know what what did what did we need to learn from that early earlier experience that we could then. Uh, apply now and um and once we did that once i once i said okay this is what we've learned um and now let's let's make sure we're using what we've learned now um and so uh that i'd say okay, so, so can you can you be my ally now let's make sure we're learning the lessons are we doing that now with ifs um and what what is it we need to make sure that that uh, we're being thoughtful about here with this model, you know, like so, for example, with unburdening, you know, like is this really does this idea really make sense, or is this too out there? Is this too crazy? You know, because a lot of I think I think there are people who think you know is this idea too crazy? Is this you know, and and um, uh. Part of me, you know, I think some of us have, have, one of the things about IFS that I love is that you can contain more than one reality inside yourself at the same time. And so you can have a part of, like I realized I have a part of me that can totally accept something at the same time I can have a part of me that's totally skeptical at the same time. And, um, and but this but the problem with it is just that the the part that's skeptical can sometimes uh, interfere if i if i don't if it, we don't bring it on board so i needed to bring them together and um so uh i i wanted to have the part who was skeptical be willing to like and the part who who was on board i i wanted them to work together on this and and see like what did we need so that the skeptical part could could really be on board with unburdening and um find a way to to see could could this really make sense for the skeptical part as well and um uh i this this happened a long time ago i don't even remember now what we had to go through but um i i was able to figure out a way to make unburdening make sense to the skeptical part of me i think what it needed was it needed an actual experience like it needed to have the an experience that felt real to it like an actual it wouldn't believe it until it saw it, felt it. It had to be very concrete. That's the the, the skeptical part wants needs things to be very concrete. I totally relate to that with my skeptical part. It was clapping in the background. I I've always called 
you know, that group of parts and me sort of my empirically based parts, like uh, other parts are fine to go on faith and like, you know, theory and all of this, but those parts need empirical, concrete evidence, specific experiences. And what you said that feel real to them, that was the criterion for these parts. And I remember one day being at an IFS training down in Florida and sitting around a table with a group of friends saying, I want something that feels really real (laughs) to happen in my system because my skeptical part was just really up that weekend. And of course, the next day I had something that I could not deny on any level that was transformative. And I can say that was 2018, eight years later, or however many years ago that was. I can't do math. Five years later, the change has stuck from that one transformative experience that happened. And that's what my skeptical parts needed to see. They they needed more than the theory or seeing clients have it happen because they can pick holes in anything. Those parts can find reasons to doubt. But when there was an experience I couldn't deny either within my own system where those parts noticed it and they said, no, that was real change, real transformation that happened, that stuck, that had impact on how you move through the world from that moment forward. Or if I see similar in client systems where something happens and there is real concrete impact from that point on, that group of parts in me has needed that. Other parts in me do not need that. Yeah. Exactly. I love what you're saying. And I love what you're saying of making these parts our allies because they just have so much to offer. And it makes me more patient with the skeptical parts of clients, those parts. I love them. I welcome them truthfully, not just because we're told to. I truly welcome them because I know they're going to have so much of value. And because I know what it did for me when my skeptical parts were welcomed instead of just being told to take it on faith or believe it or just go with it. You know, when their concerns are addressed, you know, and they're treated with the respect they deserve because they're intelligent parts in all of us, you know, right? goes better. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lex. Well, You are saying some ideas and parts can get in the way in developing our own way with the model, and you gave two examples. You say an example is I should be able to work with any client. Another example is if the therapy isn't working, I just need to work harder with my own parts to be in self-energy. Want to say more on these two examples? Yeah. Let's see, what was the first one again? I should be able to work with any client. Uh, Yeah, okay. I think that's maybe not consciously stated for a lot of people, but I think a lot of people believe that. And that's not unique to IFS. I think that's probably something most therapists kind of take on, that, that, that idea. And I think it's a dangerous idea, actually. I think it's dangerous for clients that we have that idea um, because I just don't think it's true that we, we, that we should be able. And so I think, I think a lot of people get stuck in relationships with clients that aren't working and um, don't know how to get out of those relationships. So the same for the second example, you say, if the therapy isn't working, I just need to work harder with my own parts to be in self-energy. Yeah, I think it's that, that those two things are overlapping. Because um, I think sometimes we're just not a good match mm-hmm. for a particular client. Mm-hmm. That's happened for me a few times. You know, fortunately, there have been times where the client recognized it, you know, and so they chose to end the therapy. I didn't need to um, because they realized it. Um, There was one time um, I said to a client, you know, you and I have been working so hard to make this therapy work. And it doesn't, as hard as the two of us are working, it doesn't seem to be working very well. I wonder. I wonder if we might want to try to find somebody else who who would be a good match for you. And um I said to him, you know, what if I what if I try to find someone 
and you could try it out, see what you think. We won't just end. I'll, you know, you you meet with this person and see what you think and let me know. And we kept working together. I didn't just end. I just, you know, I, 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 you know, found someone else. I actually called this person I know and I said, "What do you think of this client? You know, do you do you think you could work with him?" And he said, "Oh yeah, I love clients like that." <laughs> uh, so uh, they met. And my client liked him and it turned out it was a good match. I mean, this was a therapist who actually was good with that kind of client. I was not, this was not a, this was, I mean, this, this client just triggered me. And as much as I worked with my parts, I mean, I can't tell you how, how, how much I, I, I found so many, you know, yes, he triggered parts of me. Then I work with those parts of me over and over and over again. I work with the parts of me that he triggered. And I would come back and it just didn't seem to make a difference. Um, we just weren't getting anywhere. I, I referred him to this other client, this other therapist, and um, they were a good match. And and um, the client was happy. I, I ran into this client. I just happened to, you know, run into him somewhere. And I said, how's it going? He said, it's great. It was, he, he was really, you know, like this other therapist. And, and he, you know, he was happy with this other therapist. So, I mean, I think, I think sometimes we're just not a good match for particular clients. And I think we need to accept that we have our limitations. Um, I, you know, sometimes I think maybe we need to have a way of screening. You know, we, we're not taught that we're not taught how to screen very well for, for clients who we're good, good with and not good with, uh, maybe we need to trust our instincts, our intuition about whether a client is going to be good for us or not. Maybe we need to more often uh, say, you know, why don't we have a trial period, you know, um, work together for a period of time and see if this feels like a good match, um, and, and you know, for us. Um, because I just don't think we, we are necessarily a good match for every client. And we need to acknowledge if we don't think we have the right skills for particular clients. Paul, you also say in our meeting sessions we should listen to our no and find what its yes is. What do you mean? Can you explain it? Yeah, well, first of all, I think, um, I think oftentimes um, there's some kind of inner no that, that um, a lot of us don't listen to. And, you know, I, I'll just reference Gabor. Mate wrote a whole book about when the body says no, um, which, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes our body says no, because we haven't, we haven't been paying attention to, to some, some inner no that we, we've been needing to say, uh, say, and, and I think that's true for therapists that, that, um, uh, we haven't, learn to pay attention enough to something inside us that's saying no, that's something that's going on maybe with our clients. So um, I, an example, um, I just want to give an example of what I mean by a, a no. Uh, let's see. Um, so, um, by no, I mean and like uh, some kind of strong negative reaction that we're having to something that's that's going on. And I think very often when we have a negative reaction, we feel bad about it. Like I, sh I shouldn't be having a negative reaction to my client. If I'm having a negative reaction, that means that uh, there's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be having a negative reaction. Uh, well, that's crazy. I mean, we're human and we have parts and um, 
if we're having a negative reaction, um, that means something. It's something to be curious about. You know, what's going on? Why, you know, there's information there. Um, and, and often I think very valuable information um, there in that negative reaction. But I don't give myself a chance. And, and it's hard. I mean, it is hard to pay attention to that negative reaction because I'm trying to be present. But the problem is sometimes the negative reaction is so strong and I get so blended with it that it's hard to get curious um, about what is it trying to tell me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with myself so much with that negative reaction that it's hard to get curious. But what I want to say, first of all, is that it's really important to really know that negative reaction has valuable information. Um, and not to be ashamed of it, not to feel bad about it, but to know there's valuable information in that negative reaction. So here's an example. Your client, and this is very common, I hear this all the time, your client is blended with a storytelling part. And the storytelling part is talking and talking and talking. Uh, without It doesn't take a breath. And it won't let you get in a word. And in fact, if you if you really could think about it at all, you probably realize that, um, and you're trapped, and you feel trapped, right? I mean, this is probably one of your strongest emotions. Is I feel trapped here in this room with 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 this client who won't who won't let me get in a word, and um, won't let me connect with them at all. Like they're just keeping me totally at a distance. They won't let me connect with them, and you're feeling helpless, you're feeling frustrated, you're feeling trapped, and you there's just nothing you can do. Um, and you're, to you're totally blended. As a therapist, you're totally blended with the part of you that's trapped and, and, and uh, frustrated. Um, so my suggestion at that point is first to admit to yourself that you're totally blended with that part of you that fe that's feeling all those feelings, trapped, frustrated, um, stuck, um, and realize that that part of you is trying to say no to this experience. No, I don't want this. I don't want to be in this room. I don't want to be doing this. No. Um, and if you can, in the moment, first of all, you're not really paying attention to the client in that moment because you're you're blended. So the best thing you could do, if it's possible, is to unblend from that part of you and start paying attention to that part of you. You might not be able to. You might have to wait till after the session. But if you can, um, then you can get curious, like what is happening that is so unbearable that that part has to take you over? There's something in that experience for you that is so unbearable that that part needs to take you over. It's protecting you from something. And, and that's why it's taking you over. For me, that experience is the feeling of being totally shut out, totally invisible, totally disconnected from, you know, like I'm so unimportant and, and invisible. Um, like, I'm, like, I'm, like I'm there, but I'm not there. Like, like uh, you know, for some part of me, that's, that is unbear unbearable. And so when I, so that's the no. Like, uh, no, I, I don't, I can't stand that. Okay, so then I say, okay, well, then what's the yes? By yes, I mean there's something life-affirming within that no. Okay, what's the life experience? What's the life-affirming message that's underneath that no? And so for me, the life-affirming message is I, I don't deserve that. 
I deserve to be seen. I deserve to be acknowledged and, and loved and cared about. I deserve to have a client who values what I have to offer. That's what I deserve. I deserve, I deserve a client who wants to connect with me. Wants what I have to offer. That's what I deserve. Now, that's not what I have in the present moment <laughs> in that room. But that's what I at least deserve. Yes, to be aware of that. That's the point, right? To become that's 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 the life affirming message underneath that no. If I can if I can get in touch with that, with what that part is telling me, then at least I'm free of being taken over by that part. And I can affirm that part, what that part is trying to do, right? And I'm no longer blended. There's so, there's so many benefits to what you're saying, this process that you're describing that we would go through. And like you said, one is just what you just said now, that we'd be no longer blended, that there's the opportunity for healing that part, that there can be more conscious decision in terms of what you were talking about before of whether we're the right match for this client, whether that relationship makes sense for us to be in, are we the most, the person who could help them the most in the way they needed to. And then it makes me think that what you're talking about doing, turning toward these parts, working with them also would allow for a parallel process. Then when you return to the session with the client, it's almost like asking the same question. So you were asking the question, what's happening inside of me, you know, that's, or in this situation with the client, that's so unbearable that this part needs to take me over. That's what the question I always ask myself when I sit with a client where the storyteller won't let me get a word in edgewise is what's happening. That's so unbearable inside the client that the storyteller feels the need to take over and be so blended that they're not given any space. So it's like, I love your process because it allows the parallel process. Exactly. That's the next step. So then um, once I've done that, um, I can say to myself, okay, so then what do I do with the, the current reality that I have a client who can't bear, it doesn't feel safe enough. This client does not feel safe enough to let me connect with them. That's why they're doing this. Exactly. And then so much compassion so and can I, flow from us when we realize that this is yeah, protection. Right. Once, I, once I've connected with that part of me, I, then I'm in a position to do that, to go back to the client and say, so what's going on with them? Yeah. Then I can do that. Exactly. They don't feel safe enough to let me connect with them. Um, so what do I do with that? And and at least I became I can be curious about that at that point. Yes. And and I don't know the answer yet. You know, it depends. It's you know, each client's gonna be a, a little different, but at least I can ask the question. I can, I can, I can face the reality. They're not safe. What can I do with this client who doesn't feel safe enough to let me connect with them? That's a wonderful tale, Heath. Yes. Paul, you also say that being open to guidance and finding teachers or mentors you resonate with is a big part of this process of finding your own way. What would you like to say on this topic of finding teachers or mentors to help us to find our own way? Well, I would just say that um, even now, um, I, I, you know, it's important to me to have a mentor. You know, at my late stage in life, I, I, uh, I still feel, you know, like I remember, I remember as a young, very young adult, um being feeling so lost in life because i didn't have the guidance i needed and um you know at different points i've gotten guidance but even even now i'm 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 72 years old i i still feel sometimes i need 
guidance and, and mentorship. And unfortunately, I do. I, I still have an IFS therapist and I'm, I'm still getting guidance. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just feel like like we have to be open to that, to getting getting, you know, finding people who can who can be our teachers and guides. And and then there's, you know, there's guidance available to us from other sources and and. Um, uh, I will just say um, the guidance that's available to us, you know, there were a number of years where there was this whole thing around, um, where there were a particular way that you you needed to get guidance. You have to go down this path, guided imagery exercises about how to get guidance. And they were all visual. They were all visual um, teachings, you know, like you had to see the guide. Well, I'm not a visual person. I don't see my parts. Uh, the way the way I experience my parts is more visceral, and I don't see my guides. So the w- the way that I experience my parts and the way that I receive guidance is much more visceral. And so I guess I just want to say that that um, people need to be open to their own way of receiving guidance. And um, if you are open to guidance and you ask for guidance, uh, maybe you'll get it, you know, from some other, from some larger, you know, like self, self energy is beyond us. It's not just a, you know, an individual thing. It's, there's some larger field. I believe there's some larger field of self energy around us. And so I think we're, um, we have access to that if we're open to it. And so uh, if we ask for it, I think it's available to us. And I just want to say one other thing, which is um, <clears throat> I think a lot of us IFS therapists have an easier time extending self-energy to our clients than we do to ourselves. That was true for me for, me for many, many years. Took me a long, long time to learn how to extend self-energy to myself. And I finally, I finally developed a practice of bringing self-energy to myself. And I, I, I just want to encourage people to work with that, to find a way to, you know, work with the blocks that you might, you might have to bringing self-energy, you know, it's, there's this U-turn that we have in IFS that's, I think we tend to think of it more as a, a U-turn uh, with our parts. Um, but I think it's a, you know, it needs to be a, a U-turn of self-energy, you know, also. And like, I deserve self-energy just too, you know, just like my my clients, I deserve self energy and um but i think we we probably most of us have uh, um blocks to um feeling maybe like even that we deserve it or you know there, I, there's something there's something for a lot of us that gets in in the way probably all our role also as therapists our therapist parts also probably I mean, even if you say out loud to yourself, I deserve, I deserve to extend self-energy to myself. What do you notice? Like what comes up if you just say that out loud to yourself? I, I deserve to have compassion for myself. I deserve, I deserve to accept myself. What do you notice? Um, you know, you might notice parts come up. <laughs> That's right away. A chorus of various parts agreeing or maybe not totally agreeing <laughs> that, that come up. It felt good on my system. It felt good. He's like, yes, I deserve it all. Yeah, a good invitation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So for me, so there's two things that I've done around that. One is um, a physical embodying practice. And it's it's I stand and use my hands and arms to kind of bring in self-energy from above. And I just repeat some phrases um, 
opening to self-energy, um, inviting in self-energy, embodying self-energy. Um, and I just try to like feel it, feel myself opening it, opening to it. And then at a certain point, I put my hands over my heart. And then I speak to myself and I say, I love you, Paulie. I love you. I love you, all my parts. Beautiful. Yeah. And then the other one I learned from a meditation teacher. And um, uh, it's it's uh, setting an intention. And I think setting intentions is very powerful. Um, and so, and you can change it, you know, individualize it, change it every day. And the intention is um, for, you know, I'll just say what it is in this moment, in this moment, you know, um, my intention is to be a loving presence for myself and for whatever parts of me are most needing my intention with kindness and tenderness. And my wish is to be really present for myself when my parts are most needing me. So beautiful, Paul, and so needed. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing all your, your wisdom today with us. This is such an important topic. So, so glad that you suggested it for us to dive into together. I feel like we could have done three episodes on this and not gotten everything that you're holding around it, but I, it's, it's very, I'm really appreciative of your sharing yourself with us. Yes, Paul, such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having us and for bringing this beautiful topic and your wisdom to this community. Such a joy to be here with you and Lexi and looking forward to more connection. We hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. And I just mentioned that I am hoping to give workshops the coming year around gifts of the exiles and essential skills of IFS around therapeutic relationship and IFS. I'm also hoping to do something around communal healing of collective trauma. So another important topic. Is there a way to subscribe to receive notice of your workshops or anything like that? So if people are interested, they can contact me through my email. Wonderful to be with the two of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon.